This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Sean? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. That's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785. That's 201-472-0785, or go to askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all my socials. Now, today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, Bill. Greetings. It's good to be here. You know, Bill, I love... Okay, there's some drawbacks of the way things are in the world right now, but I love that we're being so efficient. We're here. We're in isolation. We're Zooming. We're not commuting. We're not making carbon footprint all over the place. Uh, So in that spirit... We have a guest here who's been working for years to make our society more efficient and less wasteful, even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, all the time. Correct. Yes. Our guest today is William McDonough. He's an architect who won the Presidential Award for Sustainable Development from President Clinton and the Presidential Green Chemistry Award from President George W. Bush. So he's been at this for quite a while. He's also the author of Cradle to Cradle. Remaking the way we make things. Mr. McDonough, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Bill? Please do. And I'll call you Bill. Uh, Please. Cradle to cradle. What do you mean by that? Well, in nature, there's no such thing as waste. One thing's waste is another thing's food. So cradle to cradle is looking at things and saying, where does it come from and where is it going? And how do we close the cycles? Because otherwise we end up with cradle to grave, which is a a term used a lot in industry. And it means that you start by taking something and you make something and then you, quote, throw it away. You bury it. So the grave, yeah, you bury it as the landfill or you go to incinerator, which could be seen as a crematorium. So instead of, you know, looking at the life cycles that end in this misery, what if we end up with uh, perpetual use of things the way nature does? It seems, intuitively, it seems like it would be cheaper. 
This is to say, if you had the means to take the example that everybody's talking about anymore is plastic. If you had the means to recover all that plastic and make it into something cool and useful, that would be a great thing. But you've been at this for years and years, right? Yes, I have. The example I always think about is the the steel case uh, furniture, office furniture. Right? Yes, and um, uh, we did Herman Miller and Steelcase, also Shaw Industries Carpet, part of Berkshire Hathaway. We we call these products of service. And so, so what did you do to make them more efficient? Well, we don't. We don't, we're not just efficient; we're more effective. It's interesting because when you look at efficiency, often it's presented as being less bad if you're doing things you worry about. So being less bad is not being good. You're bad by definition, just less so. <laughs> so we're actually interested in, in being more good and being good by definition and then more so. So that's the first thing. And, I, and when you look at Peter Drucker, the management guru, famously said, it's a manager's job to be efficient and do something the right way. But it's the executive's job to be effective and do the right thing. Because if we're doing the wrong thing, like things that pollute or have toxic materials, and then we do them the right way, even perfectly with Six Sigma perfection, we become perfectly wrong. So the question (laughs) question becomes, you know, how can I do the right thing and then do it the right way? And so Six Sigma, everybody, means uh, if you have a bell curve way, way out to the right or way, way out to the left, where things are really efficient and great. But if they're the wrong thing, they just get wrong really efficiently. Right. So what happened with Steelcase? What did you guys do? What we did is design the furniture so it could be taken apart by anybody with kitchen tools they'd find in, or tools they'd find in a kitchen drawer and in the future. And all the materials are marked so they can all be used again. So this is aluminum, this is steel, this is rubber, this is uh, this, and so on. And so the idea is to design what we call products as a service. What you really want from the chair or the car or the television set is to sit, to drive, or to watch TV. What you don't set out to buy is 4,360 chemicals and containing 80 toxins and, you know, give it to your children and encourage them to play with it. So it's really about watching TV or whatever. So we design things that can go back to industry or back to nature. So things that can go back to the biosphere, we call biological nutrients. So that'd be things out of wood or textiles. We just want to be all very safe so you can go back safely into the biosphere, biological nutrients. And then in technology, your TVs or plastics or so on, we want them to go back to the technosphere without contaminating the biosphere. And and they go into their cycles. The technosphere. And so, it's a yeah, great term. I love it. Yeah. So the technosphere so, would include the stuff you make uh, uh, integrated circuits from. Somebody, Human technologies. Selenium. And, uh, uh, yeah, sure. Arsenic. Indium gallium. Yeah, gallium. When we, when we do um, lighting fixtures, for example, if you see the light as a service, you don't say to Philips, and Philips is doing this, so this is a real story, is we said don't sell the light fixture. Sell the light. What somebody wants is the light. So now you can get Philips lamps essentially leased so that you can have light fixtures in your office building and you have the best ones you can. And then in five years, in our case, when we have we get the new ones that are more energy efficient or better light controls or better color, whatever we want. And Philips takes back the other ones. Why? 
because they're full of indium, gallium, and other rare earths, which are really, that's the feedstock for their business. So we call this storing your products in your customers' floors and buildings. Okay, now what about in the case of, uh, the example of steel case? Uh, you mentioned that these things can be reused. How do you know that they actually are? Because I know there are a lot of examples where where the potential for reusability is built in, but but it isn't necessarily easy enough to do that people make use of it. Absolutely. And that's the next big issue is how to get the reverse logistics in place. So it's the kind of thing that we work on every day. It is also the issue on the plastics is that we're working on some com- on compostable packaging right now for the form factors that are too small to collect. Sachets, the little pouches, you know, like a mustard or ketchup packet in a restaurant. It's too small to see or collect in a waste system. Um, chip, potato chip bags, candy wrappers. And these are things that are going to go fugitive. So we designed those to go back to soil safe. The fugitive plastic out there <laughs> marauding. But the ketchup packets are crazy making. What do you do? So you're, the proposal or the idea is to make a recyclable or biodegradable plastic? Well, we can make them recyclable if we can recycle them. But then again, it brings us to Corey's point that you have to be able to recover it in order to recycle it. So you know, the point is well taken. If a chair goes to Mexico City and then 15 years from now it gets thrown in the dumpster, you know, is, are those materials going to find their way back into industry? It's a great question. And I think, you know, if they're easily marked and if they're obvious and you're in a situation where people are, you know, going through collecting things, they will find them and they will take advantage of them where they can, where they need them. But um, the, the part that I like about it the most is when you have a relationship with your customer that you maintain. And a good example would be Shaw Industries, which is the largest carpet company in the world. We did the carpets and they're cradle to cradle certified. In fact, the entire company which is a multi-billion dollar company, 84% of their business is cradle-to-cradle certified based on these ideas. And, and it's owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So this is serious business. So, so hold on. That's a, you hit on a big idea there. Cradle-to-cradle certified. So you're, you are issuing the certification or who's issuing the certification? We created the certification in my company. And then we used it for our clients like Herman Miller, Steelcase, uh, Shaw. Um, and then we decided it was too valuable to be using ourselves. Plus, if we're certifying something, we're just trying to look for constant improvement. It's helping the clients understand where they can improve. But we couldn't make it a public certification because we owned it and we created it. So you can't grade your own homework. So we decided to give it to the public as a gift. And so after three years of scientific peer review, it went into a public uh, not-for-profit, independent of us, with um, a certification program that people can use and assessors. There are 14 now instead of just us who can do the assessments on these things. So it's a public good. And I just heard from a big retailer recently that they looked at 8,600 certifications for products and determined that Cradle to Cradle was the best. So let me ask you this. I'm walking down the street minding my own business. I'm I'm a consumer. Any piece of plastic now has that triangle on the bottom with a number. Now, my understanding is manufacturers put that number on there without much regard to whether or not it's really recyclable practically, whether or not the city, the municipality, the county has the ability to take this material and sort it and make use of it. Is that one of the things you're addressing in all this? Yes. 
Um, I, I, and I think most of us feel that we're not going to be sitting here with a magnifying glass looking at the bottom of every package trying to discern what number it is and then realizing we really wish it wasn't PVC, and, um, et cetera. So if you look at the, uh, these, all these materials, we find that certain ones like PET, which is polyethylene terephthalate, which is the water bottle, basically, that can be mechanically recycled. In other words, you can take that, shred it, get it quickly back into the same form. Melt it, you mean? Again. So you're, you don't even, it's not even thermoplastic, some of it. It's, it's, it can be done chemically, it can be done otherwise. Chemical. But it's basically, you can, yeah, you can recycle it. So that's mechanical recycling. And bottles are good at that. PET is good for that. The issues are on the collection. Like in New York City, they sort the plastics by shape, believe it or not. So they look for cylinders and say, oh, it's a bottle. Like and they have a machine so, that looks for cylinders? Right, optical sorters. Then we have all kinds of other sorters. We have um, uh, near-red, infrared sorters to sort this from that and so on. But, but generally, the plastics are a mess. And when you imagine what's going on, when we see the South Pacific and we see what's going on with the oceans, the most of the ocean plastics are coming from rivers, Uh so they're coming out of the rivers in Indonesia, Southeast Asia, in massive amounts. And um, it's really hard. to You're going to have to be able to collect it out there. It's all dispersed. Um, so we really need to harvest it early on in the process and redesign things to be uh, not really. Okay, so, so how, do, how do we do that? How do, how do we break this cycle of waste? Well, there are a bunch of things to do. In this country, in the United States, we can uh, actually rely on garbage collection and things like that. So it's not getting loose per se. It's still on its way to a material handling facility. So they go there and then they get sorted to the extent they can. Um, and so some of the, the materials like the PET will get separated and, and recirculated. We can also, on some of them like polypropylene, um, uh, Procter & Gamble's making a big effort there to get polypropylene back to polypropylene. There are things like that. But I think the big picture here is actually that we will end up with something called chemical recycling. Chemical recycling. We, I think we'll find that term to become one of, of currency because the, the, it used to be we would talk about things like pyrolysis, which is a form of chemical recycling. You get it hot. Um, you get it hot and you pressure and you do things. But, but basically, we're going to want to do that to get – not back to jet fuel or something else, because a lot of the early versions of those things were to create syn synthetic gases that could be converted into fuel because there was value to that. But I think in the future, what we'll see is all this plastic. We should take it back to plastic. We should take it back to durable goods, not fugitive materials that go into the atmosphere. So I, I wrote a paper in Nature Journal, Science Journal, on this subject called Carbon is Not the Enemy. It's us. It's, it's what we do, not carbon is innocent. We are carbon. Yeah, we are. We um, are indeed. Yeah. So speaking of carbon, now I've said for many years, a tree is a column of carbon. And one of the striking things, one of the most amazing things when you're a science educator and whatever, is you, sh you show people that the plants are not made of material that come very much, of material that comes up through their roots. They take the stuff right out of the air and make tree. It's amazing. And so when I think about it, just intuitively, one of the most recyclable materials 
intuitively would be would. And we have, you know, this is a call-in show. We have a voice message uh, from a guy in Milwaukee who has a question for you. Can we roll that digital recording? Hi, this is Adam. My city, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is building what they're touting as the tallest timber-based building or apartment complex in North America. And I'm wondering how sustainable these buildings are and if this is something that will help with uh, the environment. Well, um, I think they're fabulous. And just so you know, my grandfather was a lumberjack in the Pacific Northwest. So I have a lot of big tree karma. <laughs> Not all of that would be good but, if you're cutting them all down, but the, here yeah, we go. But that was, that was that. And, um, so, you know, my summer, I lived in Asia. I was, grew up in Hong Kong and Japan. But the, my summers were spent in the Puget Sound, a beautiful place called Hood Canal, among the big trees. And I love the big trees. Hood Canal is beautiful, everyone. I can it's assure beautiful. You. I lived in Seattle for many years, you know. Yeah, and my father was from there. So, um, anyway, when I got to college, I, did, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was at Dartmouth in New Hampshire again, a place with a lot of trees. And um, I remember, you know, saying... Uh, you know, I'm going to study here. Do I want to study international relations? And so I looked into, you know, all weapons of mass destruction become mutually assured destruction, politics, detente. No, I don't think so. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll look at physics because I had seen Hiroshima as a child and I wondered how did, how is it possible for cities to disappear in seconds? So I took physics and the professor said, oh, here, if you want to understand that, you have to read this book and it was the special theory of relativity. And he said, answer that equation equals MC squared, solve for that. And they'll know. And then I, I, you know, was sitting in my dorm room going, oh no, you know, I just learned about entropy. Everything's going to chaos and it's a law of physics. And and then I can't solve E equals MC squared. I'm in total crisis. And then I was staring at the log burning down, and I went to the library looking for negative entropy because I had read about entropy. This is everything, you know, dispersing not to return. And I couldn't find it because I was in the wrong library. I was in the physics library trying to find something counteracting the law of physics. <laughs> and it turns out, it turns out, I said, I'm in the wrong library. You know, it was the log had to be negative entropy itself. So then I went and studied what is it to be a living thing, and I found Crick. And in, in 1962, he delivered a paper at the University of Washington. This is Francis Crick. Francis Crick, and he and James Watson found DNA. Along with Rosalind Franklin, everyone. That's a good point. And then in 62, he did this paper called On the Nature of Vitalism. And he said a living thing you know, has these characteristics. And they were, it has to have growth. It has to have income in order to grow. And most of nature gets it from the sun. And it gets it from carbon from the atmosphere, like you point out. And then it needs an open metabolism of chemicals operating for the benefit of the organisms and their reproduction. Wow. So then I thought, you know, I think I'm going to become an architect. And if I do, I'm going to design buildings like trees, like trees. I'm going to design buildings that accrue more solar energy than they require to operate, that create birdsong, that emit oxygen. I mean, think about it. I saw a picture for an ad of, for cars that had a picture of a tree and it said, our aim, zero emissions. That is ridiculous. Trees emit oxygen. So why would I, everybody just thinks it's carbon. It's not. This is oxygen and so on. 
So to get to your question, the idea of embedding carbon in the materials that is coming from natural sources powered by the sun and taking that carbon from the atmosphere and saying, you, stay here now, right? That's it. Don't go rot and go back up. Stay here and serve this immensely useful purpose. Is a very beautiful thing. So as we see the wood replacing concrete and steel, it is a very beautiful thing as long as the forestry is good. Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Three great words. Free Fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax must update rewards. Science Rules is back. How do you feel about bamboo? Um... I th- bamboo has a lot of uh, uses. I mean, growing up in Hong Kong, you, you see all the trees, all the bamboo used as scaffolding. We used it for brooms. We used it for buckets. We used it for everything. Bamboo is a spectacular material. And it's made, it's used um, for rayon. Well, it's used for clothing. It's a grass, yeah. yeah. The only things you have to be very careful when you look at the bamboo and how it's processed. It's actually a very uh, strong and durable uh, grass. And so what you're looking for is make sure they're not using a lot of caustic materials or, to process, um, yeah. yeah, the processing, and make sure it's done well. And um, yeah. but if if you were driving, we would make buildings out of wood. I am designing buildings out of wood. We're doing the tallest building on the eastern seaboard right now. Oh, well, so, yeah, where definitely. is it? What, what's the building? In Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. It's uh, for Apex. It's a wind power company, and. The assignment, I actually live in Charlottesville. I used to be the dean of the architecture school here. So it's the first time I'm doing something locally for fun. But the head of the company just said, we're going to be, you know, carbon neutral building. And I said, let's be carbon positive. Why would I want to be neutral? That's cool. You know? So let's go. And so we're doing it. So their part of the building is all been calculated to be a contributor to the benefit, not a detractor. This is good. We have another caller, I think. I want you to connect this message. Here, here we go. Uh, roll that digital recording. Hello. I'm wondering about the future of sustainable design in buildings. Uh, most buildings exist already. Most buildings are not going to be built, especially in major cities. And so I'm just curious what the future holds for existing buildings in urban landscapes. Second question is, is it better to tear a building down and build a high-efficiency building or to improve the building that already exists? Thank you. Well, that's a great question. Well, if I could jump ahead on this. Please, sure. what jump is, away. <laughs> what's a problem we have is that we haven't designed for resiliency and for long-term use. So in cradle to cradle, we don't talk about end of life. We talk about end of use. And when you talk about the end of the use, 
Then you ask the question, what's the next use? So now we're designing for next use. So what you're pointing out is a really seriously interesting point. And here, here's by way of example. If you look at designs of buildings, which were not atypical in older times, we would design buildings to have great human purpose and a flexibility of various kinds of activities. So if you go to Soho, New York, you're looking at all these buildings that were designed to be working buildings or warehouses. And yet, because of the proportions, they had high windows because they needed deep daylight because they were using gas lamps. So they wanted daylight to get in deep, tall windows. They needed high windows to get the bad air out. They were using gas lamps. So they needed ventilation at the top of the room. So you get great ventilation. The mass of the building is very dense. So it stores the evening coolness for the day during the summer, and it can store the heat of the day for the night. So these buildings were inherently proportioned beautifully and could operate on this basic, simple system. But those buildings, because the heights and the windows were all livable, can be housing. I mean, a loft apartment in New York, where do you want to live? And, you know, art galleries and uh, whatever you want, offices, it's their ideal. So the buildings are actually designed in a way that can be dignified across time and change its purposes without changing the building. So that's a really important idea. So when you look at a lot of modern buildings that are sealed up and they're all glass or whatever, we look at those and we design all our office buildings and always have to be convertible to housing in the future. And so what happens is when the building loses its utility as an office building, you can instantly convert it to housing. So we did IBM's headquarters in Amsterdam. And what we said when we built it, you know, you're not going to need this building after 10 years because your people are all going to become service people working with their customers. They don't need an office. They're not going to be in an office. They're going to be out there working with the customers or work from home. So you need a place to gather occasionally to be a community, but really. And so they sold the building and, and it got converted to housing just like that because we knew where all the walls would go. And poof, I know several housing. people that live yeah. in old school buildings with tall yeah. windows. And, and they're nice. Yeah, oh, they're great. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's the key thing is we start designing for next use. So for to answer your question, though, you can look at it many different ways. If you can dismantle the building and then get some materials from it that are useful, that's that's good. And you can recycle those materials in many cases. But um, in many other cases, you can't. So building new buildings, you should study, if you're really you know, fretting over it, you can study the carbon footprint of both activities and just say, okay, a new building is going to take this and require that. And let's take a 20-year perspective. How much carbon is involved in this and that and the other thing? But then that would lead you, if you become an architect, something else we call uh, buildings as material banks. We design buildings as material banks. So if 20 years from now you want to tear it down, it's all ready to come apart because you designed it for disassembly. And we've tagged all the pieces as commodities. So we know what the steel's worth. We've designed it so it comes out as a piece of steel you can actually use, so you don't have to melt it. And what we found is that if you demolish the building, and this is very valuable for the finance people, if you have a bank, a bank and you have a 15-year paper on the building and, and you end up with it because of a bankruptcy or something, if the building is normal, you have to pay 80 euros, in the case here in Europe, a square meter to get rid of it. Whereas in uh, our buildings, you get paid 150 euros for the parts. So all of a sudden, you have this dynamic, which affects even the current financing. The building is a perpetual asset. You're storing the materials in the building. That's fantastic. So, so this would apply cradle to cradle, for instance, to the renovation process. Because like in my neighborhood, the, the buildings here are mostly 
they're about 120, 130 years old. But of course, every 20 years or so, they get gutted and and redesigned. You could bring that philosophy into the buildings. Of course, yeah. How do we put this into effect worldwide? What is it we could do to make uh, to get everybody on board with this philosophy, you're making a very strong and compelling economic argument. But aren't people more? Well, what, what excites me now is that it's happening. I mean, I I have been advising companies a long time, and um, it's just really getting moving because what we what we have the second condition of credit credit is called the circular economy, and so when I I was I go to Davos, the World Economic Forum. And I was the chair of the Meta Council on Circular Economy for Davos. And I had spent years in, with Chinese on their circular economy initiatives. So this idea of the circular economy, where we move from take, make, waste, to retake, remake, restore, and regenerate, is a different strategy, circular economy, um, is, is picking up steam. And so I'm really proud of that. And, and then beyond that, I've just been working on something for the G20, which is the gathering of governments. And uh, and I opened both the sessions on climate and on energy for them with a pro- program I've designed with people in, uh, in the presidency there on uh, a circular carbon economy, which is a lens looking over the circular economy of biological and technical nutrients and cycles and saying, where's the carbon? Because our economy is driven by carbon. Unfortunately, it goes to the atmosphere, which is a nightmare. So that's fugitive carbon. Mm-hmm. So that we're going to have to reduce. But we can move to the renewable sources of energy. We can use the carbon as a solid so we can take it out of the air, bring it to CO2, add some hydrogen from our solar farms that can make hydrogen coming. Our solar is getting so cheap. If Is it, in the end, cheaper? Is there something where just like the economics can push this all the way through the economy? Oh, uh, sure. I mean, just let's look at some of the examples. When you when you look at the carpet, when we redesigned the carpet for Shaw, or with Shaw, um, they went from a PVC backing heavy and a nylon 6-6 face fiber, and we're hard to recycle. And we, working with them, changed it to thermoplastic polyolefin back and nylon 6 face fiber, which can be chemically recycled back. So, But it ended up being 10% lighter. Uh, it ended up being cheaper to make. And so the customers get a better product that's been assessed down to the parts per million for cancer, birth defects, and all the rest of it, and it's done with renewable power. And then you get your carpet, and instead of selling you a resource, we're creating a relationship. Because what we're saying is, this will be on your floor. Enjoy. What you want is comfort underfoot, appearance, cleanability, acoustics. You want all these things. Here it is. And then when you want to change it, and you want to go from blue to pink or something, you just say, hey, I want to go from blue to pink. And all of a sudden... We want the blue back because it's our raw material. We're storing our raw materials on your floor. So <laughs> we'll take them back and we'll give you a discount because we're picking up our raw materials. And then the carpet industry has 1.4 billion pounds of carpet waste in America every year. So what are we going to do with all that? So this way, it all becomes the food for the next round of carpet. And we don't have to import oil to do it. We don't have to mine more for it. We just keep reusing it cradle to cradle. There it is. You know, humans... I make a joke that when you think about it, as you introduced the tree at the beginning, if you take the physics of the sun energy and you apply it to the earth, which is a rock, dead rock in space, looks like Venus. And you go back in time and you see this dead rock in space with water on it. And then all of a sudden the carbon from its atmosphere 
is combining with the minerals in the water on the surface because of the sun, and you get biology. You get humus. And, and from humus come humans. That's interesting, isn't it? The word human is the deriv derivation of the word humus. We're the soil people. And then we also then have to recognize the word humility comes from this same word. So it means to be grounded. Isn't that something? So as designers, we have to have humility. Just reflect on the fact it took us 5,000 years to put wheels on our luggage. <laughs> do, you know that, do you know that we went to the moon before we put wheels on our luggage? Can you imagine that? And then it took us another 20 years to put four wheels on our luggage. You know, we're working on it. <laughs> so let me ask you this. The ideas, the ideas are very straightforward the way you present them. But we have a voicemail from Arkansas where a guy asks, I think, a fundamental question. Well, let's please roll that digital recording. Hi, my name is Don Sutton. Um, I'm living here in northwest Arkansas. I was wondering what you believe are the biggest hurdles to bringing us to a sustainable architecture format that can provide zero waste. Thank you. What are the biggest hurdles? If it's so easy to make money and everything is so straightforward and restoring materials and buildings, why isn't this caught on all over the place? I, again, I think that the, it comes down to um, incumbent behaviors, so where the people don't want to change because they're used to something. That's I don't need fair. wheels on my luggage, man. Yeah, yeah. I'll lug In it fact, on. you can't make me put wheels on your luggage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the real drivers are going to be money, as they always have been. It's the practical benefits that are achieved, and and money matters in these things. So. Your question about is it cheaper, is it cheaper, is actually uh, certainly a question that is asked in Northwest Arkansas quite often. So um, the, the idea that we would build this way and, and it's better and it's cheaper and it's longer lasting uh, is, is not something new, but it's something that was forgotten. And so I think it, our job is to remember this kind of thing. I mean, there is a giant project going on in Northwest Arkansas right now. That is quite astonishing in this regard. So I'm sorry. And, what what and is the project? What is the giant project. It's, it's a there's a corporate headquarters there, and other buildings that are going on, and then they're you know going to be made of wood, and uh, it's exciting. And so all of a sudden you look at Arkansas and say, what do I need for buildings? Uh, you know, let's grow the wood. Let's grow the buildings. Why wouldn't we do that? You know, it's jobs for everybody. Something has fascinated me for a long time. We got an email from Colin who asks, why do we still use asphalt for roads? And we got another email from Rebecca asking about white roads or lighter color buildings to cool down cities. And I've... Right. I love this idea of reforming our road materials. So I have spoken to engineering audiences for years about pale pavement. Do you get involved in that, in uh, light colored buildings? Yeah, it's called albedo effect. And albedo is uh, from the Latin word for white. Yeah, yeah, white. Yeah, so it's cooler for sure. Um, first of all, on asphalt, you know, sometimes when you see it in a, a material in the wrong place, you know, we we can say asphalt is actually two words assigning blame. So, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, like whoops. But asphalt is an astonishing material because flexible. We, it's inexpensive, um, and it's, it can be quite durable. And 
it's understood why people would want to use something like that. The lighter, the light colored roads and, and parking and those areas are typically concrete. And so you're dealing with concrete and the cost of concrete and, and the maintenance of concrete, which if it cracks requires, you know, pretty serious attention. Whereas asphalt is quite simple. You can scrape it up and put it back down. So, um, well, asphalt is a, flexible a, and you can pour it and you can yeah, scalp yeah. it and reuse it, yeah, but it is yeah. black. It starts out black. It's and black. Sun oh, yeah, it's black. It's, yeah, it's the bottom of the barrel. That's <laughs> what it is. Um, so, you know, it is a, it is a question. And I think that's one of those ones that I'm waiting for technology to sort of appear on this one, you know, because it is a great idea. And I think we're going to start to see uh, various kinds of polymer chemistries and and also carbon chemistries that will be amazing. Well, polymers and usually have are the, carbon, right? Like plastic roads. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But I think we're also going to start to see, like, things like graphene. Mm-hmm. Tell us about graphene. I'm kooky for graphene. We, lo- oh, we love, love graphene. graphene on this show. We're big graphene fans. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> So why are you bullish about graphene? What, what do you think graphene can do for design? Well, first of all, I think it's roughly 30 times more conductive than copper. Than so copper? What does that mean? Yeah, Everybody think that. about think about all the copper wires in your life. Yeah. So apparently if you jack it, if, if you have a, a copper cable or wire and you jacket it with graphene, you can get the voltages up and you get the power through it up. And so those are going to be interesting. Um, it's a single molecule thick, which is pretty cool to begin with. Um, and it can stop a knife. That's pretty amazing. So it's got all these properties that we can probably use to make things very super strong, very light, um, things like that. But uh, the, on the roads, the old roads and the farm roads, they used to be paved with the asphalt. And then They'd come through when you had trouble, especially in the north and the freezing and the freeze-thaw stuff. And they would come through and lay another layer down. And you'd end up with inches and inches of roadbed. Oh, that's what and happens where I live, yes, for sure. Yeah, and they get they get stronger and stronger over time. What has happened with the building codes and things now is we, they call, especially with subdivisions and, and ur- more urbanized areas, they call for concrete curbs. So it's tidy. And so they have to go in and scrape it all up all the time because they're going to get higher than the sidewalk. So, you know, so it ends up being thin, and then it cracks somewhere easily. So the whole thing is sort of funny. We're losing that Roman Appian way <laughs> permanence that we used to have with these things. I want to talk also about concrete. You were talking about concrete. Globally, concrete is a major source of of uncaptured carbon emissions. It's something like something like 5 to 10% of all global emissions are connected to concrete manufacture. Everybody keep in mind that when you're making concrete, it's a chemical reaction. People, You'll hear people say the concrete's not dry yet. That's a, a shorthand. It hasn't, yeah, the chemical reaction's not complete yet. Right, so, so how, do, how do we get at that? Well, there's all kinds of fun ways to look at that. The, uh, some of them, like one is called carbon cure, and you actually pump carbon dioxide into the batches when you're making them, and it sequesters the carbon because it's like limestone. You know, these stones are calcium carbonate, so they're looking for carbon, and uh, we can pump carbon into the concrete as we make it. The need right now, and that's why I appreciate so much what you've been doing, um, you guys, is that 
just remember, we need to invent new stuff here, urgently. And so there are a lot of people working on getting carbon into concrete and keep it from going fugitive. And it's exciting. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You're listening to Science Rules. Bill? Bill, I hear thunder. Yes, thunder, Thund- Corey. And, a, and where there's thunder... There's lightning. And where there's lightning, there is a lightning round. So, Bill, if you would, we have the lightning round questions for you. Here you go. These are quick questions, quick answers. Okay. Bill, what is your favorite building that, that you've ever designed? Oh, oh, no. They're all, <laughs> they're all my children. <sighs> well, at the moment, it is, I'd say, Environmental Studies Center, Oberlin College. It's a building that is producing 40% more energy than it requires to operate and gives it to 40% to its neighbors and purifies its own water. Wow. Check it out, everybody. What is the worst design failure in the what's the worst design in the world today? You know, it's funny because I I design, so I'm an optimist and I'm uh, I don't worry about those things. I worry about the great things we could do. So here's a question I like to ask everybody. If you were king of the forest, what would you do? Is there something you would do or a few things you would do? I would just revel in it. I would just find myself in this amazing place and listen to the trees, what they have to tell us. If you're king of the forest, you'd listen to the forest. I still listen to the trees, sure. What am I supposed to do? I love it. Nobody has ever answered the question that way. (laughs) Oh, man, this is cool. Uh, Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you so much for taking the time. You know, one thing for you, I've, I, you and I have met before because I, I was, I famously used to wear bow ties myself. Yes, and and not like as famously as you do. Um, but the uh, the the thing that always amazed me working on the space station, they asked me to design the Mars space station. And I said, "Can we come back to the blue planet before we go to the red one?" So I took the space station design team and went to Houston. And the room where they heard the word, you said, we have a problem. I said, okay, you guys invented the photovoltaic, right? So we made nuclear powered with the reactor 93 million miles away. And who did that? And they go, oh, we did. I go, okay, you're in charge of energy. Can we drink our urine up here? Yeah, yeah. Who did that? Oh, we did. Ford osmosis. I go, okay, good. You're in charge of the water. And then we went and built a building on budget of a normal federal office building, ahead of schedule. It's the highest performing building in the federal government because it was designed with a rocket scientist. And, you know, they say you don't need to be a rocket scientist to do something smart, but what if you were? <laughs> and so yes. when you... Yeah. So I designed a building with rocket science, and it was so cool. And the thing I'll never forget was they kept reminding me that when, when they landed on the moon, the average age of the NASA engineer 
on the moonshot team was 28, which means when Kennedy said we're going to the moon, they were 19. So Bill, so, did, uh, so after working with all the rocket scientists, did that change the way that you worked? Did, were there any ideas that stuck from that? I, I think my favorite story on that one was there were engi- we had these op- windows and I wanted windows right at the desk you could open. And then we had a higher window so we could do our automatic ventilation at night to pre-cool a building, a great climate. You know, you can grow almonds out there. So the engineers said, oh no, you know, we have uh, motorized windows here because they're engineered to check the diurnal temperatures and humidity and figure it out and whether they're going to optimize for the machine, you know, up and close. And why do we have to have windows that you operate by hand at the desks? Because if somebody leaves it open, it'll imbalance the mechanical system, et cetera, or confuse people. So we shouldn't have these windows at the desk. I said, no, you got to have them. And I said, why? And I said, because we're designing a landscape to attract all the native birds that fly on migrations across here. And wouldn't it be great if they land right outside your window? And like that tree we're putting right there, which is a native tree waiting for a native bird right there. And so I'll never forget, I got a phone call. It's like out of the blue. And it was this guy who had been pushing so hard to get rid of these windows. And he called and he said, Bill, Bill, listen. I was like, chirp, 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 chirp. <laughs> and he was put his phone out the window so I could hear the bird. And it was the bird we talked about. And it was in that tree. It was cool. And he said, thank you, because this is, this is what makes this place alive. And he said, on the other hand, the motors in the window operate, the automatic windows, drive us crazy. Because while you're sitting there, all of a sudden you hear, you know, drives us nuts, so we turn them all off. So we just use your window. <laughs> so. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much, man. Uh, your message is, is the key to the future. We need to think long term. We need to think big picture. We need to change the world. So our guest today has been Bill McDonough, an architect and author of Cradle to Cradle. So everybody, remember when it comes to tearing broken systems down and rebuilding them to last beyond your lifetime, Corey, Science Science Rules. If you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. Be sure to look at my socials for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at askbillnye.com. Uh, Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and our very own Corey S. Powell. Hey, Casey Halford makes this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martorana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the CCO, the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science, Science Rules. rules. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.